Phase the First, Part Four of Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. On the morning appointed for her departure, Tess was awake before dawn at the marginal minutes of the dark when the grove is still mute save for one prophetic bird who sings with a clear-voiced conviction that he at least knows the correct time of day the rest preserving silence as if equally convinced that he is mistaken she remained upstairs packing till breakfast-time and then came down in her ordinary weekday clothes her sunday apparel being carefully folded in her box her mother expostulated you will never set out to see your folks without dressing up more the dand than that but i am going to work said tess well yes said mrs durbeyfield and in a private tone at first there might be a little pretence of it but i think it will be wiser of ye to put your best side outward she added very well i suppose you know best replied tess in a calm abandonment and to please her parents the girl put herself quite in joan's hands saying serenely do what you like with me mother mrs durbeyfield was only too delighted at this tractability first she fetched a great basin and washed tess's hair with such thoroughness that when dried and brushed it looked twice as much as at other times she tied it with a broader pink ribbon than usual then she put upon her the white frock that tess had worn at the club walking the airy fullness of which supplementing her enlarged coiffure imparted to her developing figure an amplitude which belied her age and might cause her to be estimated as a woman when she was not much more than a child i declare there's a hole in my stocking heel said tess never mind holes in your stockings they don't speak when i was a maid so long as i had a pretty bonnet the devil might have found me in heels her mother's pride in the girl's appearance led her to step back like a painter from his easel and survey her work as a whole ye must see yourself she cried it is much better than you was the other day as the looking-glass was only large enough to reflect a very small portion of tess's person at one time mrs durbeyfield hung a black cloak outside the casement and so made a large reflector of the panes as it was in the wont of bedecking cottages to do after this she went downstairs to her husband who was sitting in the lower room i'll tell ye what tis durbeyfield she said exultingly he'll never have the heart not to love her but whatever you do don't say too much to tess of his fancy for her and this chance she has got she is such an odd maid that it might set her against him or against going there even now if all goes well i shall certainly be making some return to parson at stagfoot lane for telling us dear good man however as the moment for the girl's setting out drew nigh when the first excitement of the dressing had passed off a slight misgiving found place in joan durbeyfield's mind it prompted the matron to say that she would walk a little way as far as to the point where the acclivity from the valley began its steep ascent to the outer world at the top tess was going to meet with the spring-cart sent by the stoke d'urbervilles and her box had already been wheeled ahead towards the summit by a lad with trucks to be in readiness seeing their mother put on her bonnet the younger children clamoured to go with her i do want to walk a little ways with sissy now she's going to marry our gentleman cousin and wear fine clothes now 
said Tess, flushing and turning quickly. I'll hear no more of that. Martha, how could you ever put such stuff into their heads? Going to work, my dears, for our rich relation, and help get enough money for a new horse, said Mrs. Durbeyfield pacifically. Good-bye, father, said Tess, with a lumpy throat. Good-bye, my maid, said Sir John, raising his head from his breast as he suspended his nap, induced by a slight excess this morning in honour of the occasion. Well, I hope my young friend will like such a comely sample of his own blood, and tell him, Tess, that being sunk quite from our former grandeur, I'll sell him the title. Yes, sell it, and at no unreasonable figure. Not for less than a thousand pound, cried Lady Derbyfield. Tell him I'll take a thousand pound. Well, I'll take less, when I come to think of it. He'll adorn it better than a poor lamakin feller like myself can. Tell him he shall have it for a hundred. But I won't stand upon trifles. Tell him he shall have it for fifty. For twenty pound. Yes, twenty pound. That's the lowest. Damn me. Family honour is family honour, and I won't take a penny less. Tessa's eyes were too full and her voice too choked to utter the sentiments that were in her. She turned quickly and went out. So the girls and their mother all walked together, a child on each side of Tess, holding her hand and looking at her meditatively from time to time, as at one who was about to do great things. Her mother just behind with the smallest, the group forming a picture of honest beauty flanked by innocence and backed by simple-souled vanity. They followed the way till they reached the beginning of the ascent, on the crest of which the vehicle from Trantridge was to receive her this limit having been fixed to save the horse the labour of the last slope. Far away, behind the first hills, the cliff-like dwellings of Shaston broke the line of the ridge. Nobody was visible in the elevated road which skirted the ascent, save the lad whom they had sent on before them, sitting on the handle of the barrow that contained all Tess's worldly possessions. "'Abide here a bit, and the cart will soon come, no doubt,' said Mrs. Derbyfield. "'Yes!' I see it, yonder. It had come, appearing suddenly from behind the forehead of the nearest upland, and stopping beside the boy with the barrow. Her mother and the children thereupon decided to go no farther, and bidding them a hasty good-bye, Tess bent her steps up the hill. They saw her white shape draw near to the spring-cart, on which her box was already placed but before she had quite reached it another vehicle shot out from a clump of trees on the summit, came round the bend of the road there, passed the luggage-cart, and halted beside Tess, who looked up as if in great surprise. Her mother perceived, for the first time, that the second vehicle was not a humble conveyance like the first, but a spick-and-span gig or dog-cart, highly varnished and equipped. The driver was a young man of three or four-and-twenty with a cigar between his teeth, wearing a dandy cap, drab jacket, breeches of the same hue, white neckcloth, stick-up collar, and brown driving-gloves. In short, he was the handsome, horsey young buck who had visited Joan a week or two before to get her answer about Tess. Mrs. Derbyfield clapped her hands like a child. Then she looked down, then stared again. Could she be deceived as to the meaning of this? 
"'Is that the gentleman kinsman who makes Sissy a lady?' asked the youngest child. Meanwhile the muslined form of Tess could be seen standing still, undecided beside this turnout, whose owner was talking to her. Her seeming indecision was, in fact, more than indecision. It was misgiving. She would have preferred the humble cart. The young man dismounted, and appeared to urge her to ascend. She turned her face down the hill to her relatives, and regarded the little group. Something seemed to quicken her to a determination, possibly the thought that she had killed Prince. She suddenly stepped up. He mounted beside her, and immediately whipped on the horse. In a moment they had passed the slow cart with the box, and disappeared behind the shoulder of the hill. Directly Tess was out of sight, and the interest of the matter as a drama was at an end, the little one's eyes filled with tears. The youngest child said, "'I wish poor poor Tess wasn't going away to be a lady,' and lowering the corners of his lips, burst out crying. The new point of view was infectious, and the next child did likewise, and then the next, till the whole three of them wailed loud. There were tears also in Joan Derbyfield's eyes as she turned to go home, but by the time she had got back to the village she was passively trusting to the favour of accident. However, in bed that night she sighed, and her husband asked her what was the matter. "'Oh, I don't know exactly,' she said. "'I was thinking that perhaps it would have been better if Tess had not gone. Oughtn't you to have thought of that before? Well, tis a chance for the maid. Still, if twere the doin' again, I wouldn't let her go till I had found out whether the gentleman is really a good-hearted young man, and choice over her as his kinswoman. Yes, you ought perhaps to have done that, snored Sir John. Joan Derbyfield always managed to find consolation somewhere. Well, as one of the genuine stock, she ought to make her way with him if she plays her trump card aright. And if he don't marry her afore, he will after. For that he's all afire with love for her, any eye can see. What's her trump card? Her Derbyfield blood, do you mean? No, stupid! Her face! As twas mine! Chapter 8 Having mounted beside her, Alec d'Herbeville drove rapidly along the crest of the first hill, chatting compliments to Tess as they went, the cart with her box being left far behind. Rising still, an immense landscape stretched around them on every side, behind the green valley of her birth, before a grey country of which she knew nothing except from her first brief visit to Trantridge. Thus they reached the verge of an incline down which the road stretched in a long straight descent of nearly a mile. Ever since the accident with her father's horse, Tess Derbyfield, courageous as she naturally was, had been exceedingly timid on wheels. The least irregularity of motion startled her. She began to get uneasy at a certain recklessness in her conductor's driving. "'You will go down slow, sir, I suppose?' she said with attempted unconcern. D'Herbeville looked round upon her, nipped his cigar with the tips of his large white centre teeth, and allowed his lips to smile slowly of themselves. "'Why, Tess,' he answered, after another whiff or two, 
it isn't a brave bouncing girl like you who asks that why i always go down at full gallop there's nothing like it for raising your spirits but perhaps you need not now ah he said shaking his head there are two to be reckoned with it is not me alone tib has to be considered and she has a very queer temper who why this mare i fancy she looked round at me in a very grim way just then didn't you notice it don't try to frighten me sir said tess stiffly well i don't if any living man can manage this horse i can i won't say any living man can do it but if such has the power i am he why do you have such a horse ah well may you ask it was my fate i suppose tib has killed one chap and just after i bought her she nearly killed me and then take my word for it i nearly killed her but she's touchy still very touchy and one's life is hardly safe behind her sometimes they were just beginning to descend and it was evident that the horse whether of her own will or of his the latter being more likely knew so well the reckless performance expected of her that she hardly required a hint from behind down down they sped the wheels humming like a top the dog-cart rocking right and left its axis acquiring a slightly oblique set in relation to the line of progress the figure of the horse rising and falling in undulations before them sometimes a wheel was off the ground it seemed for many yards sometimes a stone was sent spinning over the hedge and flinty sparks from the horse's hoofs outshone the daylight the aspect of the straight road enlarged with their advance the two banks dividing like a splitting stick one rushing past at each shoulder the wind blew through tess's white muslin to her very skin and her washed hair flew out behind she was determined to show no open fear but she clutched d'urberville's rein arm don't touch my arm we shall be thrown out if you do hold on round my waist she grasped his waist and so they reached the bottom safe thank god in spite of your fooling said she her face on fire tess fie that's temper said d'urberville tis truth well you need not let go your hold of me so thanklessly the moment you feel yourself out of danger she had not considered what she had been doing whether he were man or woman stick or stone in her involuntary hold on him recovering her reserve she sat without replying and thus they reached the summit of another declivity now then again said d'urberville no no said tess show more sense do please but when people find themselves on one of the highest points in the county they must get down again he retorted he loosened rein and away they went a second time d'urberville turned his face to her as they rocked and said in playful raillery put your arms round my waist again as you did before my beauty never said tess independently holding on as well as she could without touching him let me put one little kiss on those homeberry lips tess or even on that warmed cheek and i'll stop on my honour i will tess surprised beyond measure 
slid farther back still on her seat, at which he urged the horse anew and rocked her the more. "'Will nothing else do?' she cried at length, in desperation, her large eyes staring at him like those of a wild animal. This dressing her up so prettily by her mother had apparently been to lamentable purpose. "'Nothing, dear Tess,' he replied. "'Oh, I don't know. Very well. I don't mind,' she panted miserably. He drew rein, and as they slowed he was on the point of imprinting the desired salute, when, as if hardly yet aware of her own modesty, she dodged aside. His arms being occupied with the reins, there was left him no power to prevent her manoeuvre. "'Now, damn it, I'll break both our necks,' swore her capriciously passionate companion. "'So you can go from your word like that, you young witch, can you?' "'Very well,' said Tess. "'I'll not move since you be so determined. But I—I I thought you would be kind to me and protect me as my kinsman. Kinsmen be hanged. Now, but I don't want anybody to kiss me, sir, she implored, a big tear beginning to roll down her face and the corners of her mouth trembling in her attempts not to cry. And I wouldn't have come if I had known. He was inexorable, and she sat still, and d'Urberville gave her the kiss of mastery. No sooner had he done so than she flushed with shame, took out her handkerchief, and wiped the spot on her cheek that had been touched by his lips. His ardour was nettled at the sight, for the act on her part had been unconsciously done. "'You are mighty sensitive for a cottage girl,' said the young man. Tess made no reply to this remark, of which, indeed, she did not quite comprehend the drift, unheeding the snub she had administered by her instinctive rub upon her cheek. She had, in fact, undone the kiss as far as such a thing was physically possible. With a dim sense that he was vexed, she looked steadily ahead as they trotted on near Melbury Down and Wingreen, till she saw, to her consternation, that there was yet another descent to be undergone. "'You shall be made sorry for that,' he resumed, his injured tone still remaining as he flourished the whip anew, "'unless, that is, you agree willingly to let me do it again, and no handkerchief. She sighed. Very well, sir, she said. Oh, let me get my hat. At the moment of speaking her hat had blown off into the road, their present speed on the upland being by no means slow. D'Urberville pulled up and said he would get it for her, but Tess was down on the other side. She turned back and picked up the article. "'You look prettier with it off, upon my soul, if that's possible,' he said, contemplating her over the back of the vehicle. "'Now, then, up again. What's the matter?' The hat was in place and tied, but Tess had not stepped forward. "'No, sir,' she said, revealing the red and ivory of her mouth as her eye lit in defiant triumph. "'Not again, if I know it.' "'What? You won't get up beside me?' No, I shall walk. Tis five or six miles yet to Trantridge. I don't care if tis dozens. Besides, the cart is behind. You artful hussy. Now, tell me, didn't you make that hat blow off on purpose? I'll swear you did. Her strategic silence confirmed his suspicion. 
Then d'Urberville cursed and swore at her, and called her everything he could think of for the trick. Turning the horse suddenly, he tried to drive back upon her, and so hem her in between the gig and the hedge. But he could not do this short of injuring her. "'You ought to be ashamed of yourself for using such wicked words,' cried Tess, with spirit, from the top of the hedge into which she had scrambled. "'I don't like ye at all. I hate and detest you. I'll go back to mother, I will.' D'Urberville's bad temper cleared up at sight of hers, and he laughed heartily. "'Well, I like you all the better,' he said. "'Come, let there be peace.' i'll never do it any more against your will my life upon it now still tess could not be induced to remount she did not however object to his keeping his gig alongside her and in this manner at a slow pace they advanced towards the village of trantridge from time to time d'urberville exhibited a sort of fierce distress at the sight of the trampling he had driven her to undertake by his misdemeanour she might in truth have safely trusted him now but he had forfeited her confidence for the time and she kept on the ground progressing thoughtfully as if wondering whether it would be wiser to return home her resolve however had been taken and it seemed vacillating even to childishness to abandon it now unless for graver reasons how could she face her parents get back her box and disconcert the whole scheme for the rehabilitation of her family on such sentimental grounds a few minutes later the chimneys of the slopes appeared in view and in a snug nook to the right the poultry farm and cottage of tess's destination chapter nine the community of fowls to which tess had been appointed as supervisor purveyor nurse surgeon and friend made its headquarters in an old thatched cottage standing in an enclosure that had once been a garden but was now a trampled and sanded square. The house was overrun with ivy, its chimney being enlarged by the boughs of the parasite to the aspect of a ruined tower. The lower rooms were entirely given over to the birds, who walked about them with a proprietary air, as though the place had been built by themselves and not by the certain dusty copyholders who now lay east and west in the churchyard. The descendants of these bygone owners felt it almost as a slight to their family, when the house, which had so much of their affection, had cost so much of their forefathers' money, and had been in their possession for several generations before the D'Urbervilles came and built there, was indifferently turned into a foul house by Mrs. Stoke D'Urberville, as soon as the property fell into hand according to law. "'Was good enough for Christians in grandfather's time,' they said. The rooms wherein dozens of infants had wailed at their nursing now resounded with the tapping of nascent chicks. Distracted hens in coops occupied spots where formerly stood chairs supporting sedate agriculturists. The chimney-corner and the once blazing hearth was now filled with inverted beehives, in which the hens laid their eggs, while out of doors the plots that each succeeding householder had carefully shaped with his spade were torn by the cocks in wildest fashion. The garden in which the cottage stood was surrounded by a wall, and could only be entered through a door. When Tess had occupied herself about an hour the next morning in altering and improving the arrangements, according to her skilled ideas as the daughter of a professed poulterer, the door in the wall opened, and a servant in white cap and apron entered. She had come from the manor-house. 
"'Mrs. D'Urberville wants the fowls as usual,' she said. But, perceiving that Tess did not quite understand, she explained, "'Mrs. is an old lady, and blind.' "'Blind?' said Tess. Almost before her misgiving at the news could find time to shape itself, she took, under her companion's direction, two of the most beautiful of the Hamburgs in her arms, and followed the maid-servant, who had likewise taken two, to the adjacent mansion, which, though ornate and imposing, showed traces everywhere on this side that some occupant of its chambers could bend to the love of dumb creatures, feathers floating within view of the front, and hen-coops standing on the grass. In a sitting-room on the ground floor, ensconced in an armchair with her back to the light, was the owner and mistress of the estate, a white-haired woman of not more than sixty, or even less, wearing a large cap. She had the mobile face frequent in those whose sight has decayed by stages, has been laboriously striven after, and reluctantly let go, rather than the stagnant mean apparent in persons long sightless or born blind. Tess walked up to this lady with her feathered charges, one sitting on each arm. "'Ah, you are the young woman come to look after my birds,' said Mrs. D'Urberville, recognizing a new footstep. "'I hope you will be kind to them. My bailiff tells me you are quite the proper person. Well, where are they? Ah, this is Strutt. But he is hardly so lively to-day, is he? He is alarmed at being handled by a stranger, I suppose. And Fina, too. Yes, they are a little frightened, aren't you, dears? But they will soon get used to you. While the old lady had been speaking, Tess and the other maid, in obedience to her gestures, had placed the fowls severally in her lap, and she had felt them over from head to tail, examining their beaks, their combs, the manes of their cocks, their wings, and their claws. Her touch enabled her to recognize them in a moment, and to discover if a single feather were crippled or draggled. She handled their crops, and knew what they had eaten, and if too little or too much. Her face enacting a vivid pantomime of the criticisms passing in her mind. The birds that the two girls had brought in were duly returned to the yard, and the process was repeated till all the pet cocks and hens had been submitted to the old woman. Hamburgs, bantams, cochins, brahmas, dorkings, and such other sorts as were in fashion just then, her perception of each visitor being seldom at fault as she received the bird upon her knees. It reminded Tess of a confirmation, in which Mrs. D'Urberville was the bishop, the fowls the young people presented, and herself and the maid-servant the parson and curate of the parish, bringing them up. At the end of the ceremony Mrs. D'Urberville abruptly asked Tess, wrinkling and twitching her face into undulations, can you whistle? Whistle, ma'am? Yes, whistle tunes. Tess could whistle, like most other country girls, though the accomplishment was one which she did not care to profess in genteel company. However, she blandly admitted that such was the fact. Then you will have to practice it every day. I had a lad who did it very well, but he has left. I want you to whistle to my bullfinches. As I cannot see them, I like to hear them, and we teach them airs that way. Tell her where the cages are, Elizabeth. You must begin to-morrow, or they will go back in their piping. They have been neglected these several days. Mr. D'Urberville whistled to em this morning, ma'am, 
said Elizabeth. He? A poo! The old lady's face creased into furrows of repugnance, and she made no further reply. Thus the reception of Tess by her fancied kinswoman terminated, and the birds were taken back to their quarters. The girl's surprise at Mrs. D'Urberville's manner was not great, for since seeing the size of the house she had expected no more. But she was far from being aware that the old lady had never heard a word of the so-called kinship. She gathered that no great affection flowed between the blind woman and her son, but in that, too, she was mistaken. Mrs. D'Urberville was not the first mother compelled to love her offspring resentfully, and to be bitterly fond. In spite of the unpleasant initiation of the day before, Tess inclined to the freedom and novelty of her new position in the morning when the sun shone, now that she was once installed there. And she was curious to test her powers in the unexpected direction asked of her, so as to ascertain her chance of retaining her post. As soon as she was alone within the walled garden, she sat herself down on a coop, and seriously screwed up her mouth for the long-neglected practice. She found her former ability to have degenerated to the production of a hollow rush of wind through the lips, and no clear note at all. She remained fruitlessly blowing and blowing, wondering how she could have so grown out of the art which had come by nature, till she became aware of a movement among the ivy boughs which cloaked the garden wall no less than the cottage. Looking that way, she beheld a form springing from the coping to the plot. It was Alec d'Urberville, whom she had not set eyes on since he had conducted her the day before to the door of the gardener's cottage where she had lodgings. "'Upon my honour," cried he, "'there was never before such a beautiful thing in nature or art as you look, Cousin Tess.' Cousin had a faint ring of mockery. I have been watching you from over the wall, sitting like impatience on a monument, and pouting up that pretty red mouth to whistling shape, and hooing and hooing, and privately swearing, and never being able to produce a note. Why, you are quite cross because you can't do it. I may be cross, but I didn't swear. Ah, I understand why you are trying. Those bullies! My mother wants you to carry on their musical education. How selfish of her! As if attending to these cursed cocks and hens here were not enough work for any girl. I would flatly refuse if I were you. But she wants me particularly to do it, and to be ready by tomorrow morning. Does she? Well, then, I'll give you a lesson or two. Oh, no, you won't, said Tess, withdrawing towards the door. "'Nonsense! I don't want to touch you. See? I'll stand on this side of the wire netting, and you can keep on the other, so we may feel quite safe. Now, look here. You screw up your lips too harshly. There it is. So.' He suited the action to the word, and whistled a line of, "'Take, oh, take those lips away.' But the illusion was lost upon Tess. "'Now try.' said d'Urberville. She attempted to look reserved. Her face put on a sculptural severity. But he persisted in his demand, and at last, to get rid of him, she did put up her lips as directed for producing a clear note. Laughing distressfully, however, and then blushing with vexation that she had laughed, he encouraged her with, "'Try again. 
Tess was quite serious, painfully serious by this time, and she tried, ultimately and unexpectedly emitting a real round sound. The momentary pleasure of success got the better of her. Her eyes enlarged, and she involuntarily smiled in his face. "'That's it. Now I have started you. You'll go on beautifully. There. I said I would not come near you, and in spite of such temptation as never before fell to mortal man, I'll keep my word. Tess, do you think my mother a queer old soul? I don't know much of her yet, sir. You'll find her so. She must be, to make you learn to whistle to her bullfinches. I am rather out of her book just now, but you will be quite in favour if you treat her livestock well. Good morning. If you meet with any difficulties and want help here, don't go to the bailiff. Come to me. It was in the economy of this regime that Tess Derbyfield had undertaken to fill a place. Her first day's experiences were fairly typical of those which followed through many succeeding days. A familiarity with Alec d'Urberville's presence, which that young man carefully cultivated in her by playful dialogue and by jestingly calling her his cousin when they were alone, removed much of her original shyness of him, without, however, implanting any feeling which could engender shyness of a new and tenderer kind. But she was more pliable under his hands than a mere companionship would have made her. Owing to her unavailable dependence upon his mother, and through that lady's comparative hopelessness, upon him. She soon found that whistling to the bullfinches in Mrs. D'Urberville's room was no such onerous business when she had regained the art, for she had caught from her musical mother numerous airs that suited those songsters admirably. A far more satisfactory time than when she practised in the garden was this whistling by the cages each morning unrestrained by the young man's presence, she threw up her mouth, put her lips near the bars, and piped away in easeful grace to the attentive listeners. Mrs. D'Urberville slept in a large four-post bedstead hung with heavy damask curtains, and the bullfinches occupied the same apartment, where they flitted about freely at certain hours and made little white spots on the furniture and upholstery. Once, while Tess was at the window where the cages were ranged, giving her lesson as usual, she thought she heard a rustling behind the bed. The old lady was not present, and turning round, the girl had an impression that the toes of a pair of boots were visible below the fringe of the curtains. Thereupon her whistling became so disjointed that the listener, if such there were, must have discovered her suspicion of his presence. She searched the curtains every morning after that, but never found anybody within them. Alec d'Urberville had evidently thought better of his freak to terrify her by an ambush of that kind. End of Part 4